This podcast is in no way affiliated with the Stars Production or Diana Gabaldone. All views expressed are solely our own. Welcome to the Outlander Podcast, where the men are kilted, the women are winsome, and the whiskey is neat. Welcome to episode 265 of the Outlander Podcast. I'm Ginger. And I'm Summer, and we are in love with all things Outlander. This episode is a part of our drums, I want to say dragonfly so badly, drums of autumn read-along. We're moving forward, not backward. I know. (laughs) It's not the order we... Could you imagine? Could you imagine if we did dragonfly and amber, Voyager, and then went back to dragonfly and amber? No, what would have been funny is if we started with, did it follow your order? (sighs) Good God. Or one, two, three, four. (laughs) Could you... Oh my, could you imagine? No. Then everyone could have experienced how difficult it was to read book one. <laughs> yeah. Trying to find the characters that I was looking for from book four. That's weird. Uh, anyway. And now, on to our read-along. This week we are beginning part 11. Uh, with, what did you, how, how do you pronounce that? <laughs> Pas du tout. It means not That's at what all. I thought. It means not at all. That's totally how I would have said it. Yep. And so we'll begin that with chapter 51, and we will be going all the way through chapter 54 tonight, but we're going to start with 51 entitled Betrayal. It's October 1739, so it's a month before the last chapter took place. Diana, right, so we move forward, we move back. Yeah. Diana takes us back in time to Roger. This is just after Roger comes to, after whatever went down, with the stuff that we heard with um, Jamie and Young Ian. So Roger comes to in agony. He's hearing voices, and he thinks he's been taken to the Gloriana. He's having all, sides, all, all sorts of thoughts. He realizes that he's tied up, and he's fighting against his his um his. What is it? His bonds. Like his binds, no. His bounds, no. His bonds. He realizes then that he's on a horse, not the ship. He's outdoors, but he has no idea where he is. He's testing out his injuries. He's kind of pulling a Claire, right? Not the same way, but going through his body and maybe not the same order, but going through his body thinking, okay, this hurts. Let me, you know, let me, let me feel my toes. Let me feel my fingers and taking an assessment of like, how badly injured am I? And he rolls onto his back, opening his eyes. And he sees that he's with a group of native Americans or indigenous as we, as we prefer to say. So he's trying to remember the last thing he remembers. What he remembers is bonnet, the ship and Brie, they're hand fasting. And then, so in between this time, they said he he um, he rolled over. Well, he was on a horse, so he 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 fell off the horse or rolled off the horse. Oh, but I want you to know that that she specifically said that he's on a a. F- oh, horse. okay. Well, then there you go. So one of the other men goes to Roger with a knife, and Roger understandably is afraid. So he throws himself back, and he ab- he catches. I uh, I don't know if he meant to or not, but he doesn't care. He um catches the man with his feet. And he's kind of pushed back. And Roger tries to run away. They catch up to him and bring him down. And one says in their uh, stilted English, not hurt you. And then they cut through the cords at his wrist. So they were not trying to hurt him. Um, they let him go. I think you're missing in a very important part of the description of what's going on in that he ran like a drunken spider. <laughs> that was funny. I did laugh. I would, I would, I'm very excited to see Rick Rankin run like a drunken spider. <laughs> I wonder if that's in like the screenplay directions. Roger runs like a drunken spider. The other men went about setting up a camp and ignored Roger. Roger drinks from a creek and he remembers he's finally thinking about Fraser's Ridge. He's understandably not a fan of Jamie's. And then all of it comes rushing back to him. He remembers Fraser arguing with the young man about whether to kill him right there or not. Likely the Native Americans there are ignoring him because they know he's hopeless and has nowhere to go. He has to empty his bladder and he's thankful to find that his 
manly parts aren't really damaged because that was one of the places he'd had profound pain. Uh, he's just sore, not truly damaged. So Roger has plans to go back, of course, to Fraser's Ridge to find Brianna, but he can't leave at the moment. Of course, he tried to speak with them in a few different languages and they only ignored him. They tied him back up when they went to sleep, though. And the next morning, they were off, and he was wa- he was walking this time. He notes that they were roughly headed north, and he attempts to look out for landmarks to help him remember where he is or how to get back when he is free. They continue like this for days, and he's starting to lose track of time. And so, in order to try and keep track of time in some fashion, he pulls a knotted he pulls a thread from his coat and starts adding one knot each day to try and mark the days. And on approximately the eighth day, according to his knots, um, he finds his chance. They're climbing into the mountains. He jumps away from the party as they're descending a hill and his shoes fall off, which was that was that was like bad luck. Um, And he's running away. He sees his pursuers, but continues when one of them gets a little too close. He removes their noose from his neck. So they had um, they had put a noose around him and he takes it off his neck and lasses it around the other man's and he tightens it before running off again. Now, just thinking about that, doesn't that sound rather cartoonish? Like something you might see in Yosemite Sam? I don't know, like some WB. Like a lasso, Kinda, like he's yeah. roping doggies. Well, someone has it on, they take it off, they put it on another person and tie him up and then run away. I'm more thinking about the fact that he lost his shoes and I bet they're going to show up on Fraser Ridge. Oh, hush. <laughs> Where all the where all the missing where shoes the shoe, go? That's hysterical. <laughs> and he's tight. He tightens it, and he runs off again. Um, in a bit, the ground gives way, and he falls. He rolls down a hill, and his captors are there. He crawls in order to get away from them. Or I don't know if they see him yet, but they know he's where he's fallen. Um, he crawls into a rhododendron hell, and for a moment is hidden. Now I thought, okay, either she's being like symbolic, ironic, whatever. I got to at least look this up. And it, it is actually a thing. A rhododendron is also known as a laurel. And rhododendron hells and laurel hells are real things. And is that like how, like the, what is it? The plural noun? Like, or the plural crows? descriptor? Uh, no. Like, yeah, I like a murder a, of crows. I don't think it's a, a hell of laurel. I think it's like a thicket. It's not, it's not okay. a, multi, uh, a plural or anything. So. This I'll share the link in the show notes. It's from nationalparkstraveler.org. If you've never had the experience of trying to, to travel cross-country through such terrain, count yourself fortunate. A Forest Service publication notes that in the Appalachians... Is it Appalachians? Appalachians? It depends on who you talk okay. to. In the Appalachians... It's regional. Rhododendron is sometimes called laurel and, quote, can form a thick and continuous subcanopy known locally as laurel slicks or laurel hells. The second term is a polite but accurate description of those thickets for anyone trying to penetrate them. Horace Keppert, in his 1906 book, Camping and Woodcraft, describes another hike in a laurel hell. Quote, two powerful mountaineers starting from Tennessee, from the Tennessee side, to cross the Smokies were misdirected. They were two days in making the ascent, a matter of three or four miles, notwithstanding that they could see out all the time and pursued the shortest possible course. I asked one of them how they managed to crawl through the thicket. We couldn't crawl, he replied. We swum. That just sounds awful. (laughs) May I never be stuck in a hell. Of any kind, actually. (laughs) So Roger takes stock of his injuries. He pulls off a sock to bind around his bleeding foot. He's got a, a pretty deep cut on one of his feet. And there's no way in this hell again, literally, for him to progress forward, and he can't stand up. His captors knew where he was now, so he had to stay put, and he planned to move after dark when it was a little bit safer. In order to get through his... He's like, I live here now. Exactly. This is my new home. He focuses on Brianna, and amazingly, he gets some sleep, and he wakes when the moon is up, and he starts to slowly extricate himself from the hell. He just picks the direction because he can't tell what's what. And then, quote, some small animal ran over his hand and he jerked, hitting his head on the branches overhead, unquote. Now, you're already trapped. 
you already potentially have a hard time breathing, you know, depending on what position you're forced into. Although he could sleep, so he's breathing well enough. Oh, and then you start then you try and start to move and then a small animal runs over your hand. I think I like pee myself or poo myself because that would freak me out. And the whole this whole time he's having to keep his mouth shut. He can't like scream or freak out because then then they'll they know that he's in there, but they don't necessarily know like exactly pinpoint where he is. So he's try, he's done a good job of keeping his uh cool as far as not making noise at least verbally. Uh wouldn't you be freak out, freaked out if you were trying to escape from a rhododendron hell and these animals were calling on you? I, I'd be less concerned about the animals <laughs> and more about than the hell the, than the. <laughs> well, no, than the Indians trying oh. to Indians, the natives trying to kidnap me again. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They achieve this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. So one of the things I'm looking forward to this month is receiving the ingredients to make pasta and creamy tomato sauce. So besides having great food and yummy stuff, um, one of my favorite things to do, and I think I've talked about it before with Blue Apron, is because I'm, not that this matters, but I'm single and I live alone except for my two, Shah, and uh, they don't eat Blue Apron. They have, they have other <laughs> very fine food. But one of the things that I like to do because I don't always, um, you know, cook to the extent like all the prep and everything like that, like put it this way, even if I had all the food, I would not be prepping. I don't have time to do Blue Apron something every night. But I find it a treat. Not only is it, you know, delivered to your door, it's in, it's already perfectly measured out. But what I have done with a, a few friends is have a friend over or actually go to their house and, you know, have just not too much, like have a glass of wine or something, turn some music on and just, you know, split up the job and totally do like a prep party. And then, you know, while it's cooking, which is, you know, anywhere from 15 to 25 minutes, whatever it happens to be. And then you maybe have another glass of wine and you just, you know, maybe watch TV, maybe watch a movie. And then when the meal's ready, you just sit and eat. It makes an experience out of a meal, out of Blue Apron. So it's like a dinner party in a box. Exactly. If you split it up and, you know, don't give the host the don't give the guest, excuse me, like the hardest job, um, which I did. I gave my guest a butternut squash. <laughs> no, spaghetti squash. Oh, my God. It was awful. Uh, it tasted perfect, but it's one of the hardest things to work with. No, I think it was butternut. But um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that pasta and creamy tomato sauce. And recently I was so excited to see French bread pizza. As an option, uh -oh. I haven't uh -oh. had a French bread pizza since like the 90s. I feel like they were super popular. Frozen one. Yeah, yeah, big, yeah. Oh, girl. And, and you popped it in that little like yeah, gray sleeve. Yeah. Yes. No, but this was like doing it from scratch and it came with some amazing cauliflower to roast. And I mean, it was like, it brought me back to like my youth in the 90s of like French bread pizzas, but better because these were like, not frozen. They were fresh. And it was all the fresh ingredients. And I don't know. I look forward to seeing things that like remind me, get give me nostalgic feelings. So it was me and French bread pizza. This is how it works. You choose chef designed recipes. We, Blue Apron, deliver fresh seasonally inspired ingredients. And you cook incredible meals in as little as 20 minutes. Blue Apron offers a range of recipes bursting with flavor. Whether you're looking for a quick and easy meals or a full culinary cooking experience, Blue Apron lets you choose from a range of recipe options. And the chef designed recipes and the exciting September partnerships we've been enjoying, like Bob's Burgers and inspired burgers and Whole Food 30 approved. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash outlander. That's blueapron.com slash outlander to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And then he's coming out or nearly out-ish, like the rhododendron hell. This is if I understand the description correctly. Um, kind of ends or runs into a, a flat surface. It's it's a rock, and then he the way he finds it is he runs into it head first, and that that would hurt. <laughs> when Diana describes the stone, just right here, just the rock. Did anyone else think back to the back to the month? It's October. We don't know quite yet what day in October. 
and stones and Roger and Titi never go well together. <laughs> anyway, with this rock, he was able to feel his way around it and slowly crawl out of the hell. And then he realizes that he could see his hands. Quote, his head and shoulders protruded into a clear space. Not merely clear, but empty. Unquote. And yes, I've read this book before. And yes, Summer has read this book before. But it's been long enough since I've read it, or I should say listened to it, and I've never closely read it, to remember that this is where this happened. So my notes about, oh, does this, whenever you hear about a stone and, and it's like October, does that ring any bells or warnings, warning bells? And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of funky. And then I my next note was, and I was right. And I mean, I, I know it's not truly guessing or whatever because I have read it before. I know something like this happens. I just didn't remember that it happened right here. Quote, my God in heaven, he said softly aloud. The clearing was roughly oval in shape, ringed by standing stones with one end of the oval closed by the cliff face. The stones were evenly spaced around the ring, a few of them fallen, a couple more dislodged from their places by the press of roots and stems behind them. Not one plant grew within the perimeter of the ring. It couldn't be, but it was. And why not, after all? If Gaylis Duncan had been right, he turned and saw in the moonlight that the scratchings on the cliff face. There were several petroglyphs, some the size of his hand, others nearly as tall as he was. Spiral shapes, and what might be a bent man dancing or dying. A nearly closed circle that looked like a snake chasing its tail. Warning signs. Unquote. Like an Ouroboros? That's what I freaking wrote! <laughs> like, what? All souls, go away. Don't, don't encroach on us, please. Also, I, I try also, not to mix them. <laughs> I feel bad for Roger because... He hasn't met Diana. I if, know. He... Not even no, not even that. He he Sorry. hasn't had a chance to talk to Claire, and Claire would have oh told him, gosh. "Hey, yes, we found another stone circle." Oh, I know on Jamaica. I know. So because that happened after are, she goes they are everywhere. Yeah. Oh boy. So he feels the hem. Okay, to go from like to go from like stones to breeches is a little bit like wait what? Okay, he feels in the hem of his breeches, and he's like, "Oh, thank God, he still has the two gems he'd risked so much to get." He couldn't hear any humming or and no buzzing, thank God. So he thinks, but he thinks it must be somewhat near the end of October. Quote, he stepped closer to the cliff and saw it. An opening near the base of the cliff, a split in the rock, perhaps a cave, unquote. For a moment, for a moment, he does think of escaping. But to when and how he couldn't abandon Brianna. So since he's not going to use the stones to escape, he has to either go pack, go pack. It's not even late, you guys. He has What's to either, to pack? He has, has to either. He doesn't even have shoes. He to, I know, right? <laughs> he has to either go back to the hell or he has to scale the cliff in front of him. But before he can move, a noose is thrown over his head and tightened, pressing his arms against his body. That's some cowboy stuff right there. This whole, yeah. Joe B. writes, In a fairy tale, the woods is a place of challenge where you are forced to confront your enemies and demons, even to confront yourself. You come out changed. The songs of Sondheim are my soundtrack as we go into the woods. That's my singing. That's not her, obviously. With Roger. As he processes oh my god could you imagine if people started sending in listener comments with, with like music notes next to the things <laughs> that they want oh, you Lord. to sing i'm not suggesting anyone does no, that here's the problem michael did it one time and i had to like learn it if i have to learn it <laughs> no and i don't mean that as in his rudeness i'm just like if it comes from my head spontaneously sure nine times maybe nine and a half times out of ten i will share it <laughs> but if I have to go look something up and Google it. Oh, I think that you're understating that. <laughs> I think that 11 times out of 10. Summer. You will. <laughs> so as we go into the woods with Roger, as he's processing the encounter with Jamie and Ian that have led him to this journey, 
he finds the determination to survive this ordeal and to live for love and for Bree, as he can't believe or won't allow himself to believe she would condone her father's actions as angry at him, Roger, as she is or was. Roger also wants to survive for the equally strong but baser desire, revenge. Perversely, I rather like this aspect of Roger, especially in regard to Jamie. It shows that mild-mannered Roger has a distinctly Mackenzie edge, but also reinforces one of the themes of this book, how Jamie deals with the unknown. How does Jamie reconcile his desires to be a good, protective, honorable man in the face of uncertainty and in the face of an adult daughter who has a different moral code? How can he be a good father? Jamie's actions give Roger a very legitimate vendetta. Jamie is no stranger to enemies, but until now they have come from his reaction to something done to him, i.e. Blackjack, Sergeant Murchison, etc. In Roger, we have a righteous anger for Jamie, for something that is his fault. The broader situation as a whole isn't Jamie's fault, but his haste for vengeance puts, his, puts the current mess at his feet. This is the great shock to us as readers as we comfortable in viewing jamie through claire's and our own bias lens seeing the king of men display his feet of clay is something we aren't used to through roger we see another side to jamie is explored the flip side to jamie's determination honor and swiftness of action it gives a rounder portrayal of jamie and shows that roger will not be cowed by Jamie, and anyone who can navigate a three-month voyage with Stephen Bonnet shouldn't be underestimated. In a sense, the destruction of Roger's image of Jamie is a betrayed is a betrayal too, as he has bought into the narrative Bree has shared with him and in what he discovered himself in their research. Roger faces his moment of decision as he escapes his captors. The rhododendron hell, a metaphor, if ever one was written has his moment of decision as he usefully finds a set of standing stones. Stuck in the moment of indecision and temptation, on the steps of the palace, if you will, the noose falls. Even though he is recaptured, his time in the woods has steeled his determination to emerge and return to make amends. Woo! Joe B! Bring it! Damn! And moving on to chapter 52, entitled Desertion. We're flashing forward, people. River Run, December 1769. Okay, that location and date already tell us something is really wrong here. (laughs) Brianna is at River Run, and the chapter opens with her at Hector Cameron's mausoleum. The words it says beneath his name, Semper Fidelis, or Semper Fi, and, uh, of course, that means ever or always um, eternally faithful. And she wonders who he, Hector, had been faithful to. Was it Jocasta? Was it the Bonnie Prince? Now, Bree has not, she's not spoken to Jamie since the huge fight on the ridge. She remembers his face when she'd spoken her final words. And she wished she could forget. He and Ian had not come home that night but she still felt a longing to comfort Jamie. She sobbed to her mother after they'd gone, but she hadn't broken down since that night. Jamie had returned at dawn, talked to Claire, and then left. Then they had brought her all together, had brought Bree to River Run and left her there. She'd wanted to go with him, but both of her parents had still said, hell to the no. And Bree's like, when she kind of got over, you know, could look at it logically, she was like, yeah, I don't want to give birth potentially in the middle of wherever. It well, was there's now, no timeline. Yeah. Who knows how long it's going to take? They, they're they going after yes. an Indian tribe uh, that they don't know exactly where they are. Are they... Are they part of the, are they the nomadic tribes that move from season to season? Are they the ones that sit still? I mean... Who knows? There's so many variables. The only thing that they can count on is that Brie is going to give birth in a matter of time. It was now late December. Now, this reminds me of the time in the upper room in Outlander when Claire is with the men planning for Jamie's escape, just around the time of the solstice. So a little Pentecost. I'm not suggesting this is necessarily, though it definitely mirrors the rescue of Jamie. Brianna is now four months pregnant. 
Diana shares more of the conversation from that night. There were lots of F-bombs that we didn't get before. Brianna smells the wool of her garments and is reminded of Frank. She says, why did you have to die? She believes if Frank hadn't died, he and Claire would still be in the house in Boston and her life would be intact. Semper Fi, who was constant? Claire to Jamie, Jamie to Claire and to Brie, Roger to Brie, and Brie to Roger. Now, there is obviously stuff there. There's a lot to break down in that. That's, a, that's an oversimplification. But that is, those are the basic kind of pairings, if you, if you will. So she just had been left. She had just been left to River Run. Quote, she had kissed her white-lipped mother goodbye and then left, running through the garden, not looking at them. She'd wait here until she was sure they were gone. Unquote. But he'd followed her. Brianna, he said. She refused to move. I have a thing to say to you. I will bring him home to you, or I will not come back myself. Unquote. And then he left. When she turned, he was gone, but there was a folded piece of paper at her feet. It is February 1770, so again, we miss some time. Now it's almost two months later. Brianna settles into life at River Run. Jocasta had brought her own painting materials once she found out that Brianna had some skill at drawing. And life there is decadent in comparison to the rich. Quote, she ought to feel guilty about being at being waited on by slaves, she thought drowsily. She must remember to later. There were a lot of things she didn't mean to think about until later. One more wouldn't hurt. Unquote. Okay. My only comment to that was, eep. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have... Uh, any words? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have, there's not a comment because I don't think there's a noise that accompanies the face that I'm making right now. I wish we almost, 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 dear listener, almost had um, like face captions sometimes. Because, yeah, there's oh. no description. I think oh. it might be, remember there used to be an emoji that was like a painful looking smile. Oh, there's not like, anymore? Yeah. No, they took it away. Now, instead of having smiley eyes and just a really painful smile, it's just like the painful smile with dead eyes. Like they don't look smiley anymore. It's just, it doesn't look nearly as uncomfortable as it used to, where you're just kind of like, <laughs> awkward, awkward. That's the, that's the sound that goes with my face right now. Her morning ritual was to do a physical check-in. Now this is, again, not exactly like Claire, but she's, especially now that she's pregnant, Although she says she had done it, you know, for a while. So I, I'm guessing before, way before she was pregnant. She'd wake up and kind of stretch and just think, you know, go through her body, like not for injuries, but just to see how, how things moved and see if she felt well, maybe. See how she felt in her, in her skin. And she greets her little one. This ritual and the phrase, quote, her skin felt different in the morning, like a snake's skin, newly shed, all tender and light loosened, is perhaps illustrative of the ongoing chrysalis of her body on its way to motherhood, shedding her past, shedding the young woman she was to the life, the life that she knew. So she's not dying, but she is saying, has said goodbye to who she was alone, at least. When she was young, she'd wake to hear the, quote, chatter of her father's lawnmower underneath her window, his voice calling out in greeting to a neighbor. She had felt safe, protected, knowing he was there. More recently, she had waked at dawn and heard Jamie Fraser's voice, speaking in soft Gaelic to his horses outside, and had felt the same feeling return with a rush, no more though. Unquote. Bree now had the job of protector. She comforts herself with the thought that if the worst happened, she wouldn't be totally alone. Leanne F. writes... I have actually started to like Brianna somewhat by this point in the book. 
check-in. Let's do a quick Brianna check-in. I think we're going to have Brianna check-ins. That's the thing. I'm going to make it the thing. We're going to have Brianna check-ins with listeners, with audience of our live read live read-alongs. Heaven forbid. Could you imagine? <laughs> Never. Um, no, our live uh, after shows. But let's do a summer, a Brie check-in with Summer. Have you started to like her yet? No, she just admitted to enjoying slavery. <laughs> I can't I, I can't get on board yet. Okay, there's that. Ch- we have to do a check-in with each. Well, right now that we're doing more than one chapter an episode, no. But um, I'll do it once an episode and then certainly we'll start it for the show because that's funny. Okay, so she's Leanne F has started to like Brianna by this point in the book. In this chapter, she continues, however, I want to shake her because she has reverted to being a brat. Yes, I know Jamie has done a very bad thing by giving Roger to Roger to the natives, Native Americans, but this all was a tragic mistake, and Jamie's choices were made because he loves his daughter and wants to protect her. Jamie's choices were made because nobody gave anybody the right information ever. Because nobody had time to I mean, I blame a lot of people right now. I mean I No, there's one person who's consistently you've been very disappointed in. Lizzie? Yes. Come on, bring it. Don't don't be shy. Yes, Lizzie. I blame Lizzie. I was like, I was like well, because I, I was angry at a lot of people in the last episode. Oh, but not like Lizzie. Okay. <laughs> You're right. Not like Lizzie. So, um, not, okay. Last episode, you may have had anger for more people and maybe even for someone more than Lizzie. The thing is, the most, the one you've had the most ongoing, consistent anger issues with is Lizzie. She don't got to be telling people other people's stuff. Summer, you say it every week on the show. What are you talking about? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> she doesn't have to, she didn't have to go telling other people's stories. She is the worst kind of gossip. Oh, I thought you were ta- I thought you were telling me to stop sharing your no. stuff. And I'm like, you, no. you already talk about no. it. Okay. I'm with Lizzie. So Brianna strikes out at Jamie in her anger and pain in order to hurt him by saying, quote, my father would never have said such a thing, unquote. She uses her relationship with Frank as a way to stick it to Jamie. And she might be feeling more than a bit sorry for what she has said at this point, but her intent was to wound him. Quote, she could still see what his face had looked like when she spoke her final words to him. She wished she could forget. And then, quote, Brie could feel a part of her yearning toward that man, wanting to follow him, wanting to comfort him. And she blamed him for that as well. Holy monkey doodles, Brie, get off your whatever. Gracious. You know, again, I feel like she's blame shifting a lot here and literally taking on none of the blame on herself. And how long did it take her? How long did it take her to tell her mom about the ring and about the bonnet thing? Uh And how long did it take for them after that situation for them to share the information with Jamie? There was so much time lost because no one would just talk to each other. And she's literally shouldering, shouldering none of that blame right now, which is another reason why I'm not Team Brie yet. She doesn't feel bad enough. Leanne F. continues, Frank had many, many years to prove himself a good father to Brianna. She grew up with him, showering love and attention upon her as his only child. Brianna has put Frank on a pedestal now that he is dead. Jamie is placed in a very difficult situation. He hasn't had the luxury of building a relationship with Brianna since when she was a child. He has encountered her as an adult and they are having to deal with a with very adult situations. Rather than being an adult, Brianna has chosen to lash out at Jamie in an attempt to injure him deeply. Her actions here seem very unfair to me. Her continued insistence on referring to Jamie as he or him, as if she can't even bear to think his name in this chapter, makes me think she is pout she's a poor I can't even talk. She's a pouting, spoiled brat who is withholding herself from Jamie to rub salt in the wound. When Jamie goes to speak with Brianna before leaving her at Jocasta's, he promises her he will not return without bringing Roger back with him. The first time I read this book, Jamie's promise filled me with such a feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach. We have had more than enough instances of how well Jamie keeps such promises and what awful things such promises have resulted in, such as almost being flogged to death, sending Claire back through the stones, and leaving and living a half-life without her for 20 years. But I guess he wouldn't be the Jamie we all, we all love to love if he wasn't a promise maker. What is this piece of paper Jamie leaves behind that Brianna doesn't read but crumbles in her hand? I can't remember at this point since it's been, it has been so long since I read this book the first time. I think I would have had to read it right away. Brianna must really 
have willpower not to read what Jamie has written in the note. The chapter name Desertion also shows Brianna is feeling unkindly toward her parents. She's feeling left behind and alone, even though Jocasta and Ulysses and the others here will take very good care of her. Not only has Roger failed to show up, but now her parents have deserted her as well. She seems in she seems a bit into self-pity here. Her days of being Frank Randall's cherished daughter are only fond memories here and now. And Joe B writes Bree is surrounded by the bustle and luxury of River Run, but it's in stark contrast to the isolation and abandonment she feels. She has been left even she has been left alone, but she too is betrayed by Roger and his dishonesty, although this is put aside in the face of not knowing his fate by Jamie and by Frank, and even by somewhat, somewhat by her mother. Although Claire had stayed with Bree the night all was revealed, then as now, Bree feels the pull Jamie has on Claire, and it's interesting that the link Claire has to Jamie is described passive on Claire's part, passively on Claire's part, as if she in, were enthralled to Jamie. Like in the previous chapter with Roger's experience, this is a shadow side of the connection between her parents. Brie acknowledges and forgives the dichotomy of her mother. Her father? Not so much. The comparison between Jamie and Frank is again reversed to what we've been used to. Claire's choices and the challenges of Claire and Frank's marriage leave the reader, perhaps unfairly, finding Frank wanting in many areas. For Brie, this is by no means the case. Frank is the father that she knows and who knows her. In contrast is Jamie, who she, assisted by Claire's recollections, has idealized and who, in the first trial of their relationship, has failed her. His ideals of honor and what is appropriate sexual behavior for his daughter are what is most important to him. Her trauma seemingly less important than the slight to his honor. He might as well have said, look, look what you made me do. I do think Jamie's extreme reaction includes his grief for Brie and her losses. And he too is as susceptible as anyone else of idealizing the unknown other and having to remake what is from what he wanted. However, for me, none of this is enough of an excuse for his, ac for his accusations and reactions to a distraught and justifiably angry Brie. In grief, she farewells Claire but it's cold and alone where she interacts with Jamie with nothing more than the barest of necessary communication, although the body language speaks volumes. Jamie does get some redemption points for the swiftness of his response in going to find Roger. His costly reparation is a sign of acknowledgement of the gravity of his error as the vow he gives her is as sincere as the one he gave Claire after their fight after Fort, at, at Fort William back in Outlander. His life for his promise. Step toward forgiveness, though it is, this adds more to the emotional burden Brie carries. Guilt. What would Claire do if they can't find Roger? Would or could Claire come back to her without Jamie? And if she did, how would that affect their relationship? Would Brie feel that yet again, she is the reason her parents are separated? A little time has passed and Brianna has settled into uncertainty with the benefits and ease of River Run. Like Claire, she inventories her body as a meditation to place herself amidst the questions that are as yet unanswerable. The baby creates in her a constancy when her familiar places of safety are gone, but she echoes her mother's reliance on the power of the body to help understand circumstances. She recalls familiar childhood sounds of Frank and her subconscious brings her a version of the gentle Jamie that is caring and gentle. Grace comes from the baby in the knowledge that she will never be truly alone ever again. Enjoy it. It's about to get loud up in your house. <laughs> oh, that was chapter 52. Now moving on to chapter 53 entitled Blame. Now, this one doesn't have a date on it, but it sounds like we've jumped back in time again. Uh, yeah, because we went back when Roger was taken or gone and then forward to when Brie, when Brie was dropped off and then forward to two months later or Brie was now four months pregnant. So it was late January. So it was about a month. Mm, February? No, February. Okay. About two months then. Oh, so they dropped her off in January 
I think. And it was now February. Yes. I'm going to get those all mixed up. Jamie and Claire and Ian have traveled to the Tuscaroran village of Tenago. Claire feels guilty for having left Brianna and she's afraid for Roger and she's in pain for Jamie. She believes he's upset at her for not telling him about Bonnet sooner. Or does not tell him about Bonnet, period. Claire blames herself and Jamie still has her gold ring that she'd thrown onto the table. The weather is intermittently bad. They slept at night where they could. And uh, knowing that they were trying to get someone back, the Frasers had brought out the big guns. Their whiskey. They would trade and do whatever they needed to get Roger back. It was the Frasers' share for a year of whiskey making. Most of their income for that entire year. That made me think. Let's say, and this is not this is not reflective of me. I will say that. And this is not, I don't know Summer's business, so I, I'm not even speaking of her. But let's just say someone makes $50,000 a year. Someone makes $50,000 a year. <laughs> Thanks, literal. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> if someone makes $50,000 a year, or it doesn't matter, or 100000 it doesn't really matter, I guess, the number. You make your yearly um, wage imagine, in one month I don't, or in one section. It's just like getting yourself all set up for the fall through harvest. Well, I'm not even I'm not even talking about about making it. I'm talking about whatever it is, whether it takes you 12 months or 1 month. You have this amount that is your income, whether it's money, whether it's food, whatever that is. And this is how and of course he's worth even more. A, one human life is worth even more. But it's what they have, right? They don't have well, we'll go into a little bit later what there's a little bit more, but that's not up for grabs at this moment. They, if you made $100,000 a year, is that better? Whatever the number is, 50000 10000 100000 You make your yearly salary. Thank you. You make your yearly salary. And she says it was, I went up already. Hold on. I mean, I went down already. Don't go down. <laughs> Stop. This was most of their income for you. Now, Diana just says most. She does not say it's 80%. She does not say it's 90%. I mean, even if it's 70, that's still most. But I'm thinking it's more between 80 and 90. That's what I'm thinking because it's huge. It's like there's no recovering from this. Um, I mean, they'll survive because they'll get support on the ridge. But damn, damn. We find out that Ian had given Roger to some of his friends among the Tuscaroras, the Tuscarora, but he didn't know where they'd taken him. Jamie also admitted to telling Ian to make sure Roger... They totally re-gifted him. Did it? <laughs> That's awful. They were, like, <laughs> they were like, thanks for this white boy. Um, I don't know what to do with this. You know what? Uh, so-and-so's got a birthday coming up. I think we need to give him Except to them Except they didn't quite re-gift him. They didn't do it because they wanted to get rid of him. They would have kept him if... If he just wanted to get rid of Roger, but Ian, excuse me, Jamie told Ian to make sure that Roger did not come back. So, I mean, the Tuscarora, they, they were friendly. So obviously they didn't want him hanging around and didn't want, they were a lot closer than Jamie wanted Roger to be physically. Uh, Whatever. He's an ugly Christmas sweater and they wanted him gone. Oh my goodness. So Jamie, da, 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 he wanted to make sure Roger did not come back. And he told Ian this. Claire couldn't ask anyone anything given her lack of Tuscaroran, the language. Claire, on this trip, had brought Nyawene's amulet and the opal she'd found when she was stuck or when she and Ottertooth were Netflix and chilling. That is not what they were doing. They were hanging. They were hollow log and chilling. Huh? There was no Netflix. <laughs> Summer, stop it. Hollow log and chilling. The first... <laughs> the first... Wait, now I lost my place. And I see my place. I don't know what the words mean. Hold on. The first to return it to them. I don't know what my words mean. <laughs> uh, I can read it, but I can't tell you what it means. That's, are you, do you smell burnt toast? Stop it. Are you oh, having Lord. a stroke? Claire had brought Nyawene's amulet and the opal she'd found with Ottertooth. The first to return it to them. Oh, I get it. The first of those. The amulet. I was there like, it is. holy dude, I know I was quite, I am and was quite sober. I'm typically sober. Is that what you call Jesus? Huh? Otter holy dude. Summer. Summer. So the first one she brought, the amulet, was to return to the Tuscarora, her, to Nyawene's people. The latter, the opal, she thought 
might help them get Roger back. And so Jamie had brought every single small valuable he possessed, except for his father's ruby ring. The ruby was left with Brianna in case they didn't return. Claire was once again torn between her daughter and husband, but Bree had told her, you have to go, Mama. I trust you to find Roger. I think I realized my dad is Jamie. Right. I don't want to think about what that means regarding him and my mom. I'm not going there. But in Claire's words, Do I need to plug my, ears? my dad is Jamie. Claire says, quote, he'd do anything for you, Brianna. Anything. Unquote. Do you want me to start a list of the things that your dad would do for you? And has done for you? No. No, because we would never be done. They part with Bree saying, bring him back. You're the only one who can bring him back. Claire then tells Jamie he can't leave her like this and to go after her and to at least say goodbye. And he did. And then they left River Run. Ian comes out of the Sachem, Sachem. I, I swear I we did this dance before, Sachem. Just like being the whole family. I'll just put everyone in this in this hut. Ian comes out of the Sachem's house with Polly Ann. And Polly Ann had a little boy with her. She had been adopted by the Tuscarora and taken a husband and had recently had a baby. Claire also asks Polly Ann through Ian about the amulet. Like, I have this. Can I can I give it back? And he says that she says it's a medicine bundle of a shaman shaman and it is dangerous he says they'll not want it it should have been buried with the person it belonged to but since Nayawene's body was never found what do you do Pollyanne expresses that Nayawene's ghosts ghosts because she had to ghost walks with her with Claire but Claire is actually not troubled by this she actually has a I don't know if it's peace I don't think I don't know that Diana wrote or expressed it as peace but Claire found it. Claire was calmed by it. Claire was was not upset by the notion that Nayone walked with her. Why would she be? She was. She had no problem carrying that dude's skull around with her. But they don't have the skull with them right well, now. Not right now. But she carried it with her for a very long period of time, and she keeps it. What from from the hole to the house? And she keeps it with her, like it's in her stuff. It's not like she like in in the house. It's she doesn't she doesn't go out walking around with it. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you have a dude's head, like you you kept his head, don't you think that that's just inviting spirits to follow you? Especially the owner of said head. Pollyanne tells Ian that the night the woman died in the sawmill. Now this takes us back to the very beginning. Pretty no near the beginning of Dragon oh, Fudge, Drums of Autumn. The reason Pollyanne was. Uh, escaped or they they got her away the reason she was in danger Pollyanne says this and she had never spoken up before to them at least she tells Ian that the night the woman died in the sawmill the young I forget her name Lucy I know I'm probably making it up she was the laundress she saw a man he was white heavy and square but not as tall as Jamie and he was pockmarked he wasn't one of the plantation owners. And then Pollyanne had gone into the mill to see what was going on. But when she got there, she smelled blood and heard voices. And so she didn't go in. So all this comes back around. It had been murder. It hadn't been someone. I mean, it may have been someone. Well, it, it was murder. I don't know. Who, I don't know if it was someone was trying to abort the child and that's why it was murder. But it 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 straight up was not Pollyanne. She she was not trying to help the lady out, help the woman out. The dead lass was an army laundress, and Murchison we find out was married. And Jamie thinks that he just might call upon Murchison when they return. And Claire is like, yeah, uh, I think you got better things, more important things to worry about than this than that. We find out that Roger had been sold to the Mohawk up north. One of Ian's friends will guide them there starting in the morning. As Claire makes her way to be with Jamie, they're in a long house now and they're they're settled, getting settled for the night. Ian stops her and asks if she'll just please forgive him for Bonnet. Jamie is racked with guilt over letting Bonnet go and thinks that Claire is upset with him. Claire's surprised. 
Ian tells her that it's obvious she's upset with him. And Claire's like, I'm upset with him about what? And she says, yes, she'll go see him. She's surprised that she hadn't seen what Ian had, that she was so upset with him. Thinking about the ring, Bonnet, Brianna, and Roger, she disrobes and comes on to her husband. And Jamie's all, hells yeah. And they do it. Quote, I love this. <laughs> we were alone completely. We had the privacy of Babel. Unquote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh. But it's like, yeah. She apologizes to him and says it wasn't his fault. And he, of course, still racked with guilt, says, who else? She mentions Bonnet and he's all, Defoe? He says that, yes, Bonnet is wicked, but what does that have to do with his failings as a man? And Claire's all, Defoe? <laughs> this, okay, before we finish this, how, okay, we thought, we thought that the last, I guess, chapter 50, the one where there's the big blow up, we thought that the shiz hit the fan in that chapter when all the revelations came out. And now... <laughs> How much longer can people cross talk? How much people can how much longer can people not communicate? Have they, have they learned nothing? <laughs> apparently, apparently. Claire's like, your failings, your what? <laughs> I can't take it. I wrote so much cross talk, I can't take it. <sighs> Jamie says, quote, I hadn't a thought ever to be so jealous of a dead man, unquote. And Claire's like, wait, Frank? <laughs> what? He says he'd had him in his mind's eye the entire time they were writing, writing on the way to the village. Quote, you did say he looked like Jack Randall, no? Unquote. Jamie's eating himself up over Brianna's words, specifically her real father. Claire tells him that Bree didn't mean it. And she reminds him that she knows them both. She knows him much better. She knows her much better than he does. And she's just like her father, Brie is. Quote, you can believe me, I whispered. I love you both. Unquote. The next day, they traveled on, and it's getting ever colder. They left River Run in mid-January, and it was now, I wrote, now, now it's early <laughs> January. <laughs> Talk about time travel. Summer, correct me. Find out in the book what happened. <laughs> I think the first part's right. They left River Run in mid-January. When when was the next bit? It's very near the end. Because it says River Run, December 1769. So maybe that's the first one. They left River Run. And then she says, we had left River Run in early January. It was mid-February before Onakara pointed out to us the smoke rising in the distance that marked the Mohawk Village where he and his companions had taken Roger. So they left River Run in late. Well, I, I took this pretty much verbatim from the book. So if I got the month wrong, fair enough. But in mid was not wrong. So if they were at, they did not say December 21st. I know that. I I was just making a comparison to Outlander. But I don't know if she said mid-December. I think she just said December on those chapters where she gives the month. She didn't say what time of the month. This one, she says December. However, we flash, yeah, it's just months. So it says December 1769 and then February 1770. And then at the last, she's saying six weeks and Brianna would be nearly six months gone. So they left River Run and now it was nearly, excuse me, now it was early January when they saw the village Roger had been. No, it was mid-February. Mid -February. Now it was mid-February when they saw the village Roger had been brought to, Snake Town. They said thanks and goodbye to their guide and paid him. And they very smartly buried the rest of the whiskey outside the town, outside the village. Claire asks if they'll be understood by, by the Mohawk. Ian says, it's close, but not the same. Because the Mohawk fought with the English against the French. There will be some people there who have English. All right, then we will finish this week's read-along with Chapter 54, entitled Captivity 1. Roger thinks he'd been in the Mohawk village for about three months by the telling of his knots. He noticed that his captors had been afraid when they dropped him off of his new captors. They were indeed different. They were dressed for winter, some of their faces tattooed. He was forced to undress while they poked and jeered at him. And his foot, 
that one that he got that gash in was still really, really bad. It was badly swollen and, and the cut had become infected. He could walk on it, but it was he was in pain when he did so. And they had had him run the gauntlet. Quote, a double row of shouting savages, all armed with sticks and clubs. Unquote. Of course, not our words. They made him run. They struck him as he ran. And he just kept, he just had to keep going. One of the clubs got him in the belly and he went down. And Summer, I totally forgot about the gauntlet. And I started reading about it. I was like, oh my God, are they going to have Richard do the gauntlet? They have to. <laughs> Naked? Or at least uh, with a little with a little thong, thong on or something? I mean, he'll have a sock on. We won't see it. Uh, that's hysterical. Oh, I don't know what's worse. Just running the gauntlet at all and getting like hit in the hit, getting hit real, real close to the nads by something clothed or doing that naked and getting r- hit r- real close to the nads. <laughs> I think doing it naked on camera. Okay. <laughs> Either way, it's pucker worthy. Oh, so we want to hear from you guys. When you listen to this, tweet at us or email us. It's funner. It's funner. It's funner. It's more fun if you do it like in front of people, <laughs> she, said she, who didn't want to run the gauntlet on in front of on camera. Um, no, let us know what you guys think. Do you think they're going to keep Roger running the gauntlet? And not just, I mean, obviously run it, but because, I mean, I guess technically they could make him run it with his clothes on, but that's not fun. That's just whatever. It's it's pretty much always cold in Scotland. <laughs> oh, that, that too. I can't imagine that would ever be a no. pleasant experience. So he makes it through and they're laughing at him. But you know what? As long as I mean, laughing is not necessarily good, but it's at least better than I guess what it, something at Gelson might not be. So he bows ever the theatrical and they laugh some more. Then they take then they take him inside and let him wash and they give him back. They give him food and they give him his clothing. Or, and by clothing, they didn't give his shoes or his coat back. He was in his shirt and breeches. He was in a house, Diana writes, presumably a longhouse. He crawled into a corner and fell asleep. After this, he was treated with indifference. He was the slave of the longhouse. Now, most of his work was gathering wood and fetching water since it was in winter, and he's beginning to pick up a little bit of the language. And through communicating with some of the girls the young girls of the of the community who he chatted with, he learned that he was with the Kanyen Kahaka, keepers of the Eastern Gate of the Iroquois League. He, on the other hand, was, uh, I'm going to tell butch of this, a Kakon Hoerhas, or dog face. <laughs> Such a big difference between dog face and keepers of the Eastern Gate of the Iroquois League. Now, one of these girls, mothers, saw his foot and treated him, tweeted it, quote, and he dreamed at night of lost worlds, waking often in the dawn to the smell of fresh grass with the ache of his need spilled warmly on his belly, unquote. Now, the last part of that sentence is quite self-explanatory. The first part of that sentence, I got to, I'm going to admit, it took me a hot second to realize that he wasn't sleepwalking outside to take care of himself. <laughs> I was like, wait, it's winter. They have fresh grass. No, Ginger, it's Brianna. That took me a bit, like three reads. I'm not going to lie. But the time, the Jesuit priest, why am I saying Jesuit priest? Like I'm Italian. But the time the Jesuit priest arrived, Roger had the run of the village. And isn't he French? Alexandre Ferricol. Yeah. Yeah, I call him fromage. You call him fromage? Fromage. I think just saying it was an F word and it was French and it made me think. <laughs> made you think of cheese. Like, oh, yes. gosh. Um, so you shouldn't have an Italian. You should definitely. Um, French? French, yes. Well, I understand that, but it like it just came out really oddly. It did. So Roger had... The run of the village, basically. He not he was not in charge. He couldn't escape. But as long as he was sticking to like his own business and not interacting with people, he'd become part of the background, the schema of the people there. He was part of the community. In his in his role, he was an accepted part of that community. He was a slave, but when he walked out of the longhouse and went to go into the woods to get into the woods, when he goes into the woods to get the water to the creek or to get um, wood, whatever it is, to gather wood for a fire. No one is 
I mean, maybe out of like laughter or let's go hit a dog face. I don't know. But, you know, maybe maybe make fun of him outside of, you know, odd things like maybe like that. He's left alone to do his business because he has a role, even as a slave. Obviously, that's not awful. I mean, that, that is awful. That's not wonderful. But because he has a place there, he that's why Brianna said Brianna said, seriously, we need to we need to finish this. That's why Diana said that he had the run of the village. He could tell something was happening. He could feel it, that it was just like in the, feel it in the air tonight. Okay, that was a bad note. Roger went out a week or so later with the hunting party. So he feels something happening. The priest arrives. A week or so later, he goes out with the hunting party and they kill a moose. Or as we said in one chapter, bag a moose. Um, he was made to carry much of that meat. And when they got back to the village, it was taken from him and he was taken to a, quote, small hut that stood at the far end of the central clearing, unquote. Inside, there was a fire and the priest was there. He started speaking to him in French. And we find out that the priest's name is Alexandre, Père Alexandre Verigol. Roger what Père is a father. Roger said that he, they started speaking and Roger shares that he is a prisoner. The priest, we find out, has lived among the Mohawk for several years, but he was never adopted by them. Roger says that he was only sold into captivity and there was no one who might ransom him, so he's stuck. Alexandre asks that if he is taken away, will Roger pray for him? The Mohawk are still deciding if he will live. Later, a number of Mohawk come in and taunt Alexandre with a brand. And then I'm they like, take him taunt? away. Didn't they like brand him in his I hand don't, parts? Privates? I think I, I think they were teasing him like really close. And, and they burnt his hair because you smelled the hair, the hair burning. The pre uh and then they take him away. Roger picks up the priest's clothing and folds them. He's like, uh, you know, it's not much of a help, but it's like, what, what can I do? I am literally powerless. He ends up going to sleep and he's woken up by voices. The priest is shoved back into the hut. They'd removed his ear and part of his scalp. The priest is moaning in pain and he's in and out of consciousness. He thinks he understands what made Claire tick in that he feels this powerlessness that he cannot ease this man's pain. So he can see what would draw Claire to want to help people in this way. He takes his clothes, the priest's clothes that, that have been stripped off of him and lays them over him and also tries to stop some of the bleeding on, on, on his head, on, on the side of his face, but unable to bear it any longer. And this breaks my heart. He tells him, hush, be still now. And he rubs his back. They cling to each other that night. Roger is bordering on hysteria, thinking about dogs and the RSPCA. And in the end, tells the priest, Reposez-vous, mon ami. C'est bien là, c'est bien. Rest yourself or be, uh, lie here, lie, lie down, rest, my friend. It's it's okay there. It's okay. He also had a really hard time comforting him. Do you think that was a a dude thing? Yeah, like a like one of those like you know people always say no homo. Well, the funny thing is I don't think he had a really hard time comforting like his his first reaction was to comfort him. He did it, right? I don't he, I don't think he hesitated to go over to him. No, I I know, but as soon as soon as the priest turned it into a I need to cry and I'm I'm emotional, I'm full of emotion. It was like ha pat pat. Once yeah, once it went from kind of passive to active maybe. And like if someone's there and they you know, you think they're asleep or they're they're in they're kind of in turmoil and they're in and out of consciousness and there there's like not any quote unquote danger that they're going to turn and like, you know, touch you or and by touch, I just mean like reach out or hug you or like show you, make you uncomfortable with this really emotional display. If it's just you like patting someone's hand or as Roger did, rubbing his back and covering him up and speaking, you know, 
like saying like, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Whatever, you know, calming and comforting someone that's, it is active. He is actively doing something, but he is actively doing something when someone is semi and semi coherent. As soon as that person, like you said, turns around and wants it to be like a two way thing. I think that's when he, yeah, I think he got a little like, like, (laughs) and that was chapter 54. Join us next time when we will be moving on, starting with chapter 55 entitled Captivity, number two. And we're going to work our way all the way through 57 next week, y'all. We are demolishing this book. So thank you so much for listening. As always, we um, love to have you guys continue the conversation and join in and share on social media. And one of the best ways and it's also free by the way that you can share about our show is to tell your friends and family and anyone and everyone who loves outlander about the outlander podcast and of course there's our group on facebook which you can find easily by going to www.outlanderpod.com slash group thank you as always so much for listening we look forward to our next episode Thank you to our generous partner, Zencaster, who offers high-fidelity podcasting. Check out Zencaster and use coupon code OUTLANDER20, OUTLANDER20, for 20% off three months or 20% off for a year. Connect with us. Visit our website at outlanderpod.com. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash outlanderpod. We'd love for you to join our Facebook community at outlanderpod.com slash group. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at outlanderpod.